Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, Assistant Editor of the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Steve Gachir, retired professor of history and archival consultant for the Sporting News. He's the author of the recently published book, Baseball, The Turbulent Mid-Century Years. Steve has written No Ordinary Baseball Book. It is a bona fide scholarly work that examines the history of baseball from a multitude of facets, including its role in culture and society and the business aspects of the sport. I rarely note this, but Steve's book itself also has a beautiful cover, featuring a wonderful painting of Jackie Robinson by Greg Kreindler. Steve, thank you so much for joining me today on the New Books Network. Thank you, Caleb. It's a pleasure to be with you. Of course. You know, the, the, this was a lot of fun to read. I love I love baseball books. I'm a, I'm a massive baseball fan. Listeners uh, don't know this, but I'm currently wearing a, a New York Mets hat. So uh, I'm also a suffering, long-suffering Mets fan. Um, and, you know, just before jumping into the book, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Well, I'm a long-suffering Mets fan, too, old enough not only to have seen the Mets play in their first season, but to have seen the Dodgers before them in uh, in Ebbets Field. I went to my first Mets game on a Friday night in 1962. It was Gil Hodges' night in the old days when teams used to honor players. And I think I went with, uh, with my grandfather. Um, so my baseball uh, roots are... Uh, are long and uh, and deep. Um, I went to college and decided to become a historian um, at a time when uh, becoming an historian was probably a pretty bad career choice um, because there are graduate students in history all over the place and there just weren't that many openings. So I segued from uh, aspirations to teach academic history at the college or university level into the archives business. And I worked first at the Ohio Historical Society in Columbus, and then at the South Carolina Department of Archives and History in Columbia, South Carolina. And uh, and sometime in the, I guess it was the, uh, the fall of 1985, um, I was looking for another position, and I found an ad, a uh, job ad, uh, a job announcement for, for the Sporting News. They were about to celebrate their 100th anniversary, their centennial, and they were looking for an archivist. I applied for that job on New Year's Eve, 1985, and got it in 1986. So we moved to St. Louis um, for the fall of 1986, and I was able to help help create, establish, and manage what became known as the Sporting News Research Center. Pretty cool place for people to come in and do research if they were interested in baseball or the other sports that the Sporting News covered. Um, that remained my job until 2008, when the Sporting News decided to move its editorial offices to Charlotte, North Carolina, and told me that I didn't have to go along for the ride. Um, so, uh, uh, as as luck would have it, I was able to uh, I was able to uh, locate a, an academic position at Lindenwood University in St. Charles, Missouri, a suburb of St. Louis. So we didn't have to move, and I was able to teach history at Lindenwood um, for uh, for uh, 11 years. Um, my, my career goal, becoming an academic historian, came true just uh, several decades uh, late. Uh, stayed with Lindenwood until the COVID year of 2020 and uh, retired. And uh, then the Sporting News contacted me again under new ownership. Would you be interested in becoming an archival consultant? And of course, I said yes. So I'm retired mostly. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm still on call for sporting news projects uh, now and again. And uh, having retired, I was able to finish this book and get it published. It was a long time in coming. So for this particular book, obviously you, you cover so much in this book. It's, it's, it's really not about uh, one specific thing. It's about baseball uh, really in, in its, its entirety in the periods you look at. But what was the particular inspiration for it? Did you have a moment where you're like, I want to write a history book about baseball that's truly comprehensive. Uh, w- when did that come about for you? 
it was it was a very specific inspiration. Um, uh, Saber, the Society for American Baseball Research, um, presents a medal each year to the author of the best baseball book. And uh, uh, currently, uh, that medal presentation is done at the nine spring training baseball conference. But years and years ago, there was a separate academic conference called the Seymour Medal Conference. And I think it was in 2000, I was invited to participate at the Seymour Medal Conference in a panel discussion on the future of baseball research. There was someone there from the Hall of Fame, Tim Wiles, I think, someone from the Western Reserve Historical Society since Sabre was headquartered in Cleveland. I was there to represent the sporting news. And the fourth panelist was a woman I had not yet met, Dorothy Seymour Mills, um, the widow of Harold Seymour, the author of, well, the author with Dorothy of uh, the first two books of a baseball trilogy, um, Baseball, the Early Years and Baseball, the Golden Age, which take the story of baseball in this kind of broad format up to about 1930. And in the course of that panel discussion, I asked uh, Mrs. Mills, who I later became friends with, um, what would she think if someone wrote the next volume? And she thought that would be a terrific idea. And she said, in fact, the Seymour papers, their note cards for books that they were not able to write were in an archives at Cornell University. So I asked around, I asked all my friends in the baseball research and historical community, how would you like to write this book? And every one of them gave me the same two-part answer. I don't want to do this, but you should. I thought that was a rather stupid idea at the time. I had a family, I had a full-time job, but I talked to a friend of mine, Dan Ross, the director of the University of Nebraska Press, and asked him what he would think about it. And he said, I think this is a terrific idea. You need to submit a book proposal. And once I figured out what a book proposal was, I submitted it and it was accepted. That's why this book has been published by the University of Nebraska Press. Dan is no longer with us, but he certainly played a role in its inception. So as far as as far as the process itself of writing the book, what did that look like for you? How did you, obviously you had the, the note cards to go on, uh, but how did you go about compiling some of the other material and and going about it? What was your your your, your schedule like? Yeah, well, N- Nebraska was um, was generous. Um, they gave me uh, an advance. And with that advance, I was able to do two things. First of all, I bought a microfilm reader. I mean, what good scholar doesn't have a microfilm reader in his basement? I certainly do. And secondly, I was able to go to Cornell, to the Croc Library, and look at the uh, at the Seymour papers, at the note cards, and uh, and over a period of time to kind of create a second set of most of those note cards uh, for my own for my own use. So my research began with uh, with the Seymour papers. Um, I did a, other original research on my own in books and newspapers, but I was also able to take advantage of something that the Seymours didn't have when they were writing. And that is the tremendous amount of scholarship and publication that has been produced by Sabre members since Sabre was founded in 1971. We're talking about books, we're talking about articles, charts, websites, podcasts, just all kinds of stuff. Uh, and, And so this book, in a certain sense, is a synthesis, as academic historians would call it, a combination of original research and in, uh, the incorporation of the work of others. Um, there are an awful lot of end notes in the book, as you know. There are an awful lot of citations in the text. According to so-and-so, this happened this way. And I'm, I'm very pleased to give credit to all of those people who made my effort both harder and easier. Harder because I had to look at their work and easier because I didn't have to do it all by myself. Each chapter examines an aspect of baseball history through the lens of an individual who who helped shape that era. And chapter one looks at Connie Mack and the Great Depression. So for our listeners, who was he and what was this trying period like? Well, um, let let me first say that, you know, I was I was trying um, to do all things uh, for all people. Um, I wanted to write an academic book, but I wanted it to hopefully reach a general audience. Uh, I wanted to write scholarship. I wanted to write narrative. 
I wanted to write analysis, but I also thought that incorporating people would keep the story hopefully more lively. So as you point out, each chapter focuses on a particular individual, but then veers off in any number of other directions before coming back at the end to, uh, to the subject at hand. And, and yes, chapter one is focused on, uh, on Connie Mack, a man who was involved in, in organized baseball from the 1880s until 1950 when he retired. He began as a player, a catcher, um, and, and not a bad player at that, um, became a manager, uh, of the Pittsburgh club in the national league and, uh, and then had an opportunity to take over the Milwaukee club, uh, the Milwaukee creams, um, in the American association, which was a minor league actually in the Western league, not the American association in Ben Johnson's Western league, which was on the verge of becoming the American league. And, and Ben Johnson gave Mac the opportunity to own and operate the Philadelphia team that became known as the Athletics. They later, of course, became the Kansas City Athletics, in turn, the Oakland Athletics, and who knows, maybe the Las Vegas Athletics. Yeah, by the time this airs, it could be any, any number of cities. <laughs> yeah, who, who knows? So Mac was no longer a player, but he was a, a co-owner and a manager. And, he's, and he stayed the manager of the A's, refusing to fire himself until 1950. Um, he built two great dynasties. Um, in the early the second decade of the 20th century, the A's were the best team in the American League. And in the late 20s and early 30s, they were again the best team in the American League. But he didn't have a lot of capital at his disposal. So after about 1931 or 32, the A's began a decline that just got worse and worse as time, as time went on. And finally, after the 1950 season, two of his sons decided to tell dad it was time to to hang it up. Uh, Mac was known for um, his gentlemanly conduct, um, his formal speech, and for the fact that in the dugout he did not wear a uniform, but a, uh, a suit and a straw hat. Um, and he was known, I think, to everybody as Mr. Mac, a very distinguished gentleman and one of the key figures in baseball history throughout the first half of the 20th century. Yeah, the next person that you look at was uh, was Branch Rickey. So why was Branch Rickey so innovative? Well, I, he just had that kind of mind. I've just been doing a a, a little a little research on uh, 1950 um, for a project that I'm thinking about as my as my next project uh, by looking at every issue of the Sporting News in 1950, and almost every week there's a story about Branch Rickey with a new idea, including wait for it automated robotic umpires 73 years ago um ricky was an innovator he always he wanted to win he wanted to be successful he wanted to make money um and uh and he and he was he was like bill james i think always willing to challenge the assumptions of the past uh, why are we doing this is it successful can it be done in a better way. And uh, and throughout the first half of the 20th century into the 1950s even, Ricky was always on the cutting edge, always suggesting new ways of doing things, some of which failed, but many of which uh, succeeded. Um, his greatest innovation, of course, was the farm system, a tight union between a major league club and a number of minor league clubs as a way to prepare players to move up the ladder and become successful major leaguers. And in, the, in this time in the 30s, you know, how much money was being made? Um, you know, obviously today there are players that are signing insane contracts and teams, all, all the teams are worth, you know, in the, in the billions, low billions. Uh, but, you know, how, how are teams doing financially and how are players doing financially? During the Depression, teams were doing poorly financially. If they were making money, they were making just a little bit of money. Um, they... Interestingly, they cut salaries, of course. Um, the reserve clause was still fully in effect. Players didn't have a choice. Um, they could negotiate, but they could negotiate from a position of weakness. And, uh, and, and Mac, at least in Philadelphia, didn't cut ticket prices. Um, attendance went down, revenue went down, but he refused to cut ticket prices. He said to one reporter, come to the ballpark. Look at, look at where the empty seats are. It's not the expensive seats that are empty. It's the cheap seats that are empty. 
So I'm not going to cut. I'm not going to tick ticket prices. Um, teams changed hands somewhat, but a lot of teams in 1940 had the same owners they had in 1930. Um, and these were guys, most of them making, you know, making their living from owning a baseball team. So times were tough, but they weren't, uh, they weren't impossible. Now the minor leagues, a different story. Um, minor league teams went out of business fairly regularly. Whole minor leagues went out of business or at least suspended operations during the depression. Oftentimes, leagues would try to limp financially from opening day until July 4th, play a double header on the 4th of July, one more chance to get fans inside the ballpark, and then go out of business or at least suspend operations and call an end to the season prematurely. So the depression was tough. It was tough for players. It was tough for owners. Um, but uh, the owners made it. And, and you know, the, the, the 16 major league teams in 1940 were the same 16 teams we had in, uh, in 1930. Um, nobody moved. Nobody went to California or Atlanta or Houston. That was uh, yet in the future. One of the people that you talk about in this book, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, the first commissioner of baseball, one of the one of the one of the best baseball names I've ever seen. And baseball has a lot of great names. Uh, you know, who who was he and what what role did he play uh, in in supporting and promoting baseball in this period? Well, he was, of course, baseball's first commissioner. Perhaps uh, we should begin with a little uh, discussion of his name, Kennesaw Mountain. How many people are named Kennesaw Mountain? He, he, was, he was named by his parents after a Civil War battle, Battle of Kennesaw Mountain, just north of Atlanta. Oddly enough, Kennesaw Mountain, the mountain has two N's in it, K-E-N-N-E-S-A-W, but Kennesaw Mountain Landis, the commissioner, has only one N in his name for reasons that were never explained by anybody. His father was a surgeon. He was wounded at that battle. And he named one of his sons Kennesaw Mountain Landis. I think to his friends, he was called Ken. Uh, but most people called him Judge because he became a federal district court judge. Um, some people look at pictures of Landis, um, know that he was born right after the Civil War, and think he was a Southerner. He was not a Southerner. He was born in Ohio. He was a Theodore Roosevelt progressive Republican, was appointed to the bench by, by Teddy Roosevelt, um, became famous for presiding over a number of famous cases, including the Standard Oil case, um, and a case involving a lot of members of the IWW, the International Workers of the World. He was, I think, generally speaking, harsh, but, but reasonably just as a jurist, even though some of his decisions were overturned on appeal. Um, he was also a baseball fan and he was blessed living in Chicago. He could see two or for a couple of years, three major league teams play the Cubs in the National League, the White Sox in the American League, and the Whales or the Chai Feds in the Federal League. And when the Federal League sued Major League Baseball for antitrust violations, Landis was the judge. And he realized, reading the law, that if he decided the case justly, he would have to decide against organized baseball, apply antitrust law, and, uh, and eliminate the reserve clause. So he sat on the case, and he said to both parties, talk about this, see what you want to do um, before I make my decision. And eventually, the, the two leagues bought out the federal league eliminated the competition, except for one team, of course, the Baltimore team. But Landis was on the radar. And when baseball's uh, hierarchy, when its management structure collapsed in the, you know, in 1918, 1919, and into 1920, um, the decision of the owners was to eliminate the three-man national commission that had governed the sport and give all power to one man, the commissioner. They approached Landis for the job, um, would you be interested in leaving the federal bench and becoming baseball's commissioner? And he said, gentlemen, I'll think about it, uh, holding them on pins and needles for a while before he took before he took the job. And he remained commissioner from 1920 until his death in 1944, generally regarded as being a, uh, an autocrat, 
as the man who saved baseball, um, as a man who had the best interests of baseball at heart and made all of his decisions that way. Well, maybe, maybe not. Like most things, it's more complicated. This, the, the early, maybe not earliest history, because baseball has been around, obviously, at this point, uh, you know, baseball is, is already, what, 50, 60 years old in the, by the 30s. But, you know, uh, this this period of baseball it's so, in a way, synonymous with the New York Yankees. The New York Yankees just so unbelievably dominant team. So, why were the New York Yankees so dominant? What made them so good? Was it just that they got lucky by getting Babe Ruth, or or, or was was there was there much more to it? They, I think, the Yankees got lucky because uh, they, because they had money and were willing to spend it, um, uh, developing players, buying players, and eventually creating their own uh, their own farm system. The Yankees uh, uh, started in 1901. Um, they were owned by a couple of New York politicians uh, with unsavory reputations. At first, they were not called the Yankees. They were called the Highlanders because their ballpark was built on high ground in, uh, in, in the Bronx. Um, but uh, uh, two decades into the 20th century, they are owned by two men, uh, one uh, who buys out the other, and the guy who buys out the other is, uh, is Jacob Rupert. Um, who's rich, very rich, uh, uh, sits on a family fortune from the brewing industry. Um, people of a certain age who grew up in New York, New York will remember Knickerbocker beer. Um, that was Rupert's beer. Um, he owned the Yankees. He, um, he was willing to spend. Um, I, I, I wouldn't put him in the same class as Steve Cohen, current owner of the Mets, um, but I think, I think Rupert opened his checkbook Whenever he thought it was uh, it was prudent to do so, and he hired a man to run the team who was also extremely astute, and that was Ed Barrow, a man who had been a general manager and a field manager of, of several teams before before joining the Yankees. Of course, the Yankees' great stroke of luck, and maybe it wasn't luck, was acquiring Babe Ruth in uh, in January of 1920. Babe Ruth was. Uh, in 1920, he was he was Babe Ruth. He wasn't yet Babe Ruth, the greatest player of all time. Um, he had just recently made the transfer from being a pitcher to being an outfielder. But his greatest years as a hitter come uh, with uh, with not with the Red Sox, but with uh, the Yankees, setting home run records almost every year. Not quite, but in a couple of seasons, hitting more home runs as an individual than entire other American League teams, um, changing the nature of the game um, and also also drawing um, extraordinarily large crowds, not only at home, but, uh, but on the road. Um, if baseball's golden age is the 1920s, um, Babe Ruth is at the center of that, uh, of that, sh of that show for sure. So uh, another the ne the next person that you talk about after after the the chapter focusing on Ed Barrow and Babe Ruth is um and I might be correct me if I pronounce this name wrong but Larry McPhail. Larry uh, McPhail, yes. Ed, who who was Larry McPhail? Why was he so? Why why is he such a fascinating character? Uh, and and how did he sort of revolutionize the sport from an entertainment perspective? Well, he was outrageous. Um, you know, I think he was a he was a, he was a businessman. He was loud. He was abrasive. Um, he was innovative, like Ricky. In fact, he was he was one of Ricky's proteges. Got into baseball by owning the uh, minor league team in Columbus, Ohio, which was a St. Louis Cardinals farm team. Um, eventually, fell out with Ricky, but became uh, became uh, um, co-owner and uh, what we might call president or president of baseball operations of the Cincinnati Reds. Um, he redecorates the ballpark. I mean, he's draw, trying to, you know, it's the, the depression. He's trying to draw people to the ballpark. You don't just say, come to the game. You say, come to this game in this ballpark that we have just repainted, where we have ushers in new uniforms who will show you to their seats, who will treat you politely. We have concession stands that will sell food and drink at prices you can afford. We will bring bands to the ballpark. We will hang flags. We will paint signs. We will make this an attractive, exciting place to play. And those of you who are working, we will start to play ball games at night so that you can work during the day and come to the ballpark in the evening. The Reds play the first 
major league game at night in 1935. Um, their games are also broadcast on the radio. Um, the Reds hire uh, Red Barber to be their play-by-play announcer. He's also very successful. McPhail moves on from the Reds to the Dodgers at a time when the Dodgers were a terrible team. He brings Red Barber with him, um, stays with the Dodgers for a while, and then after World War II, joins the Yankees as a co-owner, helps to rebuild the Yankees into the post-war colossus that they uh, that they became. Um, McPhail was, um, I think, it's fair to say, an, alcohol- an alcoholic. Um, liquor caused some problems in his life and his career, um, but uh, but he was uh, he was flamboyant. He was an entertainer, and in many ways, he gave the fans what they wanted to see. Yeah, no, he he's a he's an extraordinarily fascinating figure, and it's always it's it's so interesting in baseball to see that you know these kind of P.T. Barnum type people that that helped grow the sport uh, really into the just the entertainment juggernaut. I mean, you know, people all the time today say that baseball is boring. I, you know, I, I don't agree, uh, but it, you know, th- there's so many bells and whistles now that you just come to expect with a baseball game, and it's interesting to see these these people that that figured out to do it. <laughs> before people seem to not be able to crack that code. I don't know right. why. Exactly. And McPhail was certainly one of the key figures in that part of the story. The the, the next person that, that you talk about and that you profile is a, is a person that uh, I heard so much about uh, growing up as a kid playing baseball. That's Hank Greenberg. Oh, yes. Um, and Hank Greenberg uh, is a legend in part because of his unwillingness to play baseball uh on during during jewish holidays uh and well the, the the big jewish holidays not not just shabbat not necessarily shabbat but what did he mean for jews in america and in baseball and this is an interesting chapter just to kind of get into some of the the, the ethnic struggle the divides uh and ethnic struggles in in the league sure um you know i think first i should say that um i, I was lucky when i um when i worked at the sporting news the first time to become friends with a woman named Aviva Kempner. Um, she was working on a documentary on uh, on Hank Greenberg, a player who, you know, I knew, like I knew a, about a lot of baseball players, but sh- she really unfolded his, uh, his story for me. And so a lot of what appears in this chapter was inspired by my, my, my friendship with and my admiration for the work of, uh, of Aviva Kemper and the film she did on uh, on Hank Greenberg. Greenberg grew up in New York. Um, he was uh, he was a big kid, um, tall, kind of ungainly, a good athlete in high school. Played baseball, played basketball. Um, uh, uh, his parents didn't think that uh, that baseball could be a career. It was just a game for boys. Um, so Greenberg's story is in part. Uh, an example of the assimilation of ethnic Americans into the American mainstream. Um, uh, he gets taken by a Yankee scout to Yankee Stadium, free. Let's watch a Yankee game. And Greenberg's sitting there, and he looks out at first base, which was his position, and he sees Lou Gehrig, and he realizes that Gehrig is young and great. And he says to himself, my chances of playing first base with the New York Yankees are slim or none. Um, so he doesn't sign with the Yankees, but eventually signs with the Detroit Tigers. Spends a couple of years in the minor leagues and then hits Detroit and becomes uh, uh, a star and a slugger. Um, hits 58 home runs in one year. After Ruth had hit 60 and set the record, um, Greenberg uh, came close, um, but uh, uh, but not quite. But as you indicate, um, became became a national symbol, I think, of uh, of uh, American Judaism when he refused to play on one of the high holy days in, uh, in 1934. Greenberg was not really an observant Jew. Um, he was a cultural Jew, I suppose. Um, I'm not Jewish myself. I don't want to speak for, for uh, uh, people who are Jewish. Um, uh, but uh, but when, when, he, when he made that decision, um, I mean, this was the 1930s. Hitler was in power in Germany. Americans, and especially American Jews, know, knew what was going on in Europe. And Greenberg's action was uh, was powerful. It had meaning. It had resonance. Um, and uh, and people uh, identified 
with what with what he did. Um, the uh, the Congress of the United States um, uh, isolationist uh, in opposition to President Franklin Roosevelt, who was an interventionist, still passes a uh, Selective Service Act in 1940, the first peacetime military draft in U.S. history. And early in 1941, Greenberg's number is called and he's drafted into the army at that. This is before Pearl Harbor, before the United States is involved in the war. Um, the term of enlistment of the term of service for drafted individuals was supposed to be a year or perhaps a little bit less. So Greenberg is inducted early in 1941. His, uh, his term of service is up in the first days of December 1941. Well, what happens on December 7th? The Japanese attack Pearl Harbor. The next day, President Roosevelt asked Congress for a declaration of war. Greenberg could have said, hey, I've already done my bit. I served my time. He turns around, leaves baseball again, re-enlists, misses not only the 1941 season, but the 1942 season, 1943, 1944, and half of 1945, um, serving his, his country um, in, uh, in the Army. Comes back to the Tigers. Yeah, midway through 1945, still has his baseball talents, hits a number of significant home runs, propels them to a pennant and to a World Series championship over the Chicago Cubs. Um, just a, to my way of thinking, a tremendously admirable figure. I try not, I try not to make judgments in this book. I try to lay out the facts and let readers make their own judgments. But if you read the chapter on Hank Greenberg and don't come off admiring him, and I think I did something wrong. Yeah, no, I, I mean, Greenberg is one of those people, you know, as a as a young Jewish kid playing baseball for, for you know, myself, you know, you, you want to find who are the great, the great, the great Jewish uh, baseball players. And, you know, Greenberg is is definitely someone where when you're a little, you know, a young Jewish kid and you hear about him, it's very exciting to learn about him. He, and yeah, he was a colossus yeah, physically as, as well as culturally. Yes. Uh, and, and you know that that's sort of you know his story about about his his service in, in World War II that you tell you know this is just such a, a a fascinating period of time and just shows how how different thing how truly different things were how disruptive World War II was it just disrupted all of American life uh, and you know how did baseball survive this period of time what was the thinking around it was uh, you know what was the, the the sense about whether or not baseball would be able to make its way through this period. Baseball was lucky. Um, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor in December. It's the off season, of course. Nobody quite knows what's going to happen next. There's, there's some belief, of course, that the next Japanese attack will occur in California. Um, uh, Americans, the, the American military effort was on the defensive for quite some time. So early in 1942, um, baseball's not quite sure would there be, should there be a 1942 season? Or is this war that we're involved in so significant that maybe we should stop playing baseball? There are two schools of thought. You know, baseball players are young, they're athletic, they're certainly physically fit, they should go into the military and we shouldn't play the game. The other school of thought is people who are in the military and those who are working in civilian jobs supporting the war effort Needs, needs some release from all this pressure and stress. They need some recreation. We're not going to shut down the movie theaters. We're not going to shut down radio. We shouldn't shut down baseball. Well, it's a good debate, and it indeed occurs. Commissioner of Baseball, Landis, writes a note to the President of the United States, basically saying, Mr. President, what should we do now? The subtext here is that Roosevelt is, of course, a New Deal Democrat, and Landis is, a, by this time, a conservative Republican who has no love for the president. And I think it's significant that when Landis writes to the president, he handwrites the letter in pencil. Man, I don't care who the president of the United States is. Isn't that just a wee bit disrespectful? Well, Roosevelt takes the letter under advisement. And he crafts an answer 
it becomes known as the green light letter. I give you the green light to continue playing. And in fact, he says he sides with those who believe that baseball should continue. And, and the, uh, the letter is lauded in baseball. The Sporting News says, even though the letter is written in February, Sporting News says we should make the president our major league you know, man of the year in uh, February, even before the season's played. Of course, if you read the letter carefully, you see that Roosevelt is really hedging his bets. He says baseball should continue, but players should be subject to the draft. Well, who's going to play that? And he also says, and this is a this is a, a a point of contention in 1942 that there should be more night games for those people in the United States who are working in factories and who can't go to day games. Now, major league teams, some of them had embraced night ball, but not all of them had. And so Roosevelt's letter, which looks like a permission slip, has a couple of has a couple of controversial things in it. So baseball plays the 1942 season, um, and some players leave either by uh, by the draft or because they enlist. Uh, people think that the green light letter was carte blanche for the duration of the war. It wasn't. Whether baseball should continue for the next season was discussed in the winter of 1942, 43, 43, 44, and 44, 45, when it almost came close to being shut down entirely until government officials said, hold on, we really do believe that the war is coming to an end and, and the exemptions we have more or less given baseball players will continue so that the 45 season can be played as, uh, as scheduled. Of course, the quality of play is, is, is adversely affected um, by the war. Um, the St. Louis Browns are famous in 1945 putting on their roster a man with only one arm, Pete Gray. And he does not too badly. It's, I think, about 215 or 220, plays the outfield fairly well and, uh, and doesn't strike out all that much. Um, that, I think, is an indication of how far uh, the, the quality of play had declined throughout, uh, throughout the war. Many players, many players um, left baseball, minor leaguers and major leaguers both, to serve their country. Yeah, it's it's uh there's so many of the greats at, at the time went and played, which is just it's just it's so hard to fathom today. It really is. And, and I think looking at the impact on baseball and on civilian, you know, it just is a great window into how significant the impact of World War II was on civilian life in America, even though the war never made it to, I mean, well, with the exception of Pearl Harbor, never made it to to the US shores. Right, um, right. You know, we, we, we know that famous poster of Uncle Sam pointing his finger and saying, I want you. Well, he meant it. I want you meant I want everybody in one way or another. Yeah. The, you know, this period, you know, there, there was there was other competing leagues uh, in the United States. Um, you know, there was the the, the Pacific Coast League, um, you know, and, and others. So how, how did the leagues eventually, you know, you talk about the, the Mexican League as well. How did the leagues uh, eventually come together and consolidate? What was that process like? And, and you cover this uh, over, over the course of a few chapters. Sure. Well, I, I, you know, the, the American League and the National League were, when, when the American League first became a major league in 1901, um, the American League and National League are, are at each other's throats. They, the American League doesn't honor the reserve clause. They're signing players. There are court cases. Players are signing uh, contracts with teams in both leagues. Um, it, I mean, you could consider the American League, in modern terms, you would call them an expansion league, like the American Football League was in 1960, or the American Basketball Association, or the World Hockey Association, or now maybe, um, I'm out on a limb here, the Live Golf Project, um, uh, you, you know, um, but the American League and the National League come together in 1903, they say, look, this is costing us money, guys. Let's, uh, let's consolidate, let's honor each other's contracts. And within a couple of years, they've got an agreement to play a postseason World Series that, that uh, uh, becomes iconic in American uh, sports history. Um, but, but, you know, those two leagues uh, within a few years are, are rather steady. Eight teams in each league, um, two teams in, in 10 cities, three in New York, and separate teams in Cincinnati, Cleveland, Pittsburgh. Um, uh, Detroit, et cetera. 
um, and and it doesn't change um, for 50 years. Uh, the the uh, arrangement of the teams in those two leagues is the same in 1950 as it was in in 1910. But after the war, that is after World War II, it becomes pretty apparent to intelligent people that the American population is moving. It's not only moving out of cities into suburbs, but it's moving from the north and the east to the south and the west. One of the things that aids this move is the development of airplane transportation, but another is the development of air conditioning, which makes living in places like Atlanta and Houston and Phoenix more tolerable than it would be without air conditioning. And, uh, and people in those cities um, are far removed from Major League Baseball, and they don't like it. Um, so there are a variety of efforts to try to change the structure of the major leagues. Should we create a third major league uh, from scratch? Should we take the Pacific Coast League, which is very successful on the West Coast in California, Oregon, and Washington, and turn it to a, into a third major league? Or should we take the two existing leagues, two leagues of eight teams each, and expand and make them 10 teams each or 12 teams each? Or, since baseball is very conservative, should we simply do nothing? And that, uh, that discussion goes on for, uh, for quite some time. Um, uh, three teams move in the early 50s. Um, uh, the Boston Braves become the Milwaukee Braves. Philadelphia Athletics become the Kansas City Athletics. The St. Louis Browns move in the other direction to Baltimore and become the Baltimore Orioles. But Major League Baseball, of course, doesn't reach the West Coast until the Brooklyn Dodgers become the Los Angeles Dodgers and the New York Giants become the San Francisco Giants. And even then, there's no real plan for expansion. It's Branch Rickey, again, senior, uh, on the outside of, of organized baseball who hatches a plan for a third major league called the Continental League. He has commitments from rich people in Toronto, Minneapolis, Houston, New York, a number of other cities um, to, uh, to form a third major league and compete with the existing two leagues. And it's the threat of the Continental League that finally convinces the American League and the National League to expand rather haphazardly. The American League in 1961, the National League in 1962, which is just about where my book ends. The you know something that, that you do cover um, you know pr pretty extensively in the book is you know the watershed season of 1947 and you know for for those who don't immediately that doesn't immediately spring anything to mind what happened in 1947 because obviously it's uh, it might not but that that's the year that Jackie Robinson uh, first played and and what's so significant about Jackie Robinson probably the most important baseball player. Uh, in in history, just from a cultural perspective, it, it was desegregation. So, what was desegregate? Obviously, it's so you know, de desegregation itself in baseball could take up you know volumes and volumes of books. But for those who don't yet you know know the specifics of the history, they might know the name Jackie Robinson. You know, what was that period of time like? And and, and you know, when when did the last team in, you know finally racially integrate? And what impact did this have uh, on on African American players? Sure. Well, the integration of baseball, starting with Robinson, as as you've indicated, baseball's most significant cultural change in its uh, in its entire history. Um, in the 19th century, a few African Americans played what we might call Major League Baseball. Um, throughout the 19th century and the 20th century, a certain number of Latin Americans played Major League Baseball, so long as they weren't defined as black. Um, but there was, from the late 19th century, an unofficial, um, not ever written down color line prohibiting African-Americans from playing Major League Baseball. And of course, we now know more fully than we've ever known before the story of the Negro Leagues, quality of play in those leagues, the great, great players who certainly could have held their own, at least in the Major Leagues, if they had been given the opportunity. Well, Branch Rickey is running the Dodgers during and after World War II. Um, he wants a winning team. Um, he, wants to, he wants to attract fans to Ebbets Field. And, uh, and uh, through a, an experience in his own life that goes back to the first part of the 20th century, he understands that there's a talent base here 
that baseball has not yet tapped. And he gets the permission, I guess you might say, of the commissioner of baseball, not Landis, but his successor, Happy Chandler, um, to, uh, to sign a black player. Um, he scouts, looks around for, uh, for the right person to, uh, to become what's known as the first, even though he wasn't really the first. And he picks Jackie Robinson, signs him to a contract in the fall of 1945. Robinson plays in Montreal in the minor leagues in 1946. Is a tremendous success. Goes to spring training with the Montreal team in 1947. They trained with the Dodgers in Florida, in Panama, in Cuba, uh, when that was still possible. And just before the beginning of the 1947 season, the Dodgers issue a press release and say Jackie Robinson's contract has been purchased by the Dodgers. He will start with the Dodgers on opening day, and uh, and he does, um, and he does um, he does extremely well, um, uh, and uh, and and is on his way to becoming a star. Um, Bill Veck, who owns the Cleveland Indians, integrates the American League with Larry Doby and later Satchel Paige in 1947 and 1948, and slowly, slowly, other teams follow along, uh, uh, eliminating their all-white rosters and uh, and bringing black players to the major leagues. The last team to do so, of course, is the Boston Red Sox. In oh, I'm testing my memory here, 1957 or 1958, when they, when they signed Pumpsy Green, an infielder, they become the first black Boston Red Sox. Um, it, uh, it's, it's the struggle. Um, it's a it's a racial and a cultural struggle. Um, Robinson did not have it easy, of course. Everybody knows that. Um, or did the players who followed him? Um, they proved their worth on the field. Uh, by 1960, the American League is a excuse me, the National League is a better league than the American League. The baseball being played in the National League is better baseball than the American League, and a good explanation for that is because there were more black players in the National League than the American League. Rookies of the Year in the National League, Black, Most Valuable Players, Black. First Cy Young Award winner, Don Newcomb, an African-American. Uh, the National League integrates quicker than the American League, and they reap the benefit of that uh, of that initiative. Yeah, no, it's such and, a... There's no yeah. other story like it. Yeah, it's, no other, no. it's so fascinating. It's the sort of, you know, I think this period, and, you know, if, you know, if anyone's listening and if they're not particularly interested in baseball, but they are interested in just learning about the, the impact that baseball had on the wider culture. Like, it, you know, it, it's, it's so clear that baseball and the early desegregation really was a, a forerunner to the civil rights movement in many ways and, and helped well, it's, to... an er, it's an early part of the civil rights movement. There's no, there's no question about that. I mean, I think the civil rights movement goes back at least to world war two and the double V right. campaign. Um, and, you know, I'm no expert on African-American history, but I think I've read that Martin Luther King said at one point, without Jackie Robinson, there's no me. Um, that's how significant Robinson's entrance into the major leagues was. Yeah, no, there's no my like, uh, you know, I've heard my, my uncle, for example, uh, you know, was uh, a massive Jackie Robinson fan. He he was a, you know, a, a young kid when when he saw when Jackie Robinson first played and and he, uh, he, he, you know, he went out of his way as a kid to go and try and track Jackie Robinson down. He, and he did get to shake when he was about 12 or 13 or 14, did get to shake Jackie Robinson's hand and, and you know, and, and see, see the man in the flesh, uh, you know, and just just such an unbelievable legend, a person, you know, didn't have the longest, longest playing career uh, in the MLB, but but certainly made a massive impact um, in that period of time, uh, you know. I, It'll, it'll, it's impossible for us, you know, to cover every single aspect of this book. There, there's so many more characters, so many more people um, that you talk about. But, you know, I'm wondering if, you know, for listeners, if there's anything in this interview that we haven't talked about so far, you know, any people, any things that happen that, that you that you really think that listeners uh, should know about uh, before they go and, and and pick up pick up the book uh, to read for themselves. Well, uh, thank you. Uh, you know, it's. The, the book is intended to be more than just biographical sketches. We've focused on people today, and that's perfectly all right. But this is really a narrative and analytical history of baseball over three decades. It covers the game on the field. It covers the game off the field. We talk about teams and pennant races and World Series. 
but we also talk about uh, cultural events, we talk about politics, we talk about economics, attendance, profits and loss. Um, it, it's, it's an attempt to be all things to all people, which is why it's as long as it is. Hopefully, hopefully um, it's written in, in, in a style that, uh, that holds people's attention and, and allows them to, to follow the story. But uh, that's, that's what I tried to do. And uh, we'll see if I've been successful or not. Yeah, no, uh, you know, c- come for the statistics and the in the economics and stay for the Yogi Berra quotes, uh, you know, things my, my uh, you, you do. We, we didn't really get to talk about him, but you, you do focus on Yogi Berra, too, who for those who don't know, Yogi Berra is, uh, you know, the greatest philosopher in, in baseball in baseball history. Uh, yes, so. known no, no for all kinds of sayings, one of which was, I don't think I said all the things I said. You know, <laughs> Barra, you know, I live in St. Louis, and Barra, of course, is from St. Louis. He's a local hero here um, and always will be, um, uh, But uh, and, and was a terrific ball player, of course, a great catcher for the, for the Yankees. But he also participated in the D-Day invasion, um, not not coming ashore on the beaches of Normandy, but on one of the boats that was supplying a fire to support the troops. Um, so he's a he's a war hero too. Yeah, just just an unbelievable, a truly unbelievable uh, person. Uh, like so many, so many covered. Uh, you know, baseball really is a uh, just attracts some of the some of the some of the funniest characters ever, especially in the, in the early days. You just have 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 such such great great people. He was uh, our philosopher king. There's no question about yeah. that. Yeah. Well, Steve, thank you so much for for being guest on the New Books Network. The book is Baseball: The Turbulent Mid-Century Years from Nebraska Press. Uh, I highly recommend people uh, go and check the book out. Uh, thank you so much. You're welcome, Caleb. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about my book. I, I've really enjoyed our conversation. 